Welcome to Digging In. I'm B.J. Tanksley, State Legislative Director for Missouri Farm Bureau. If you were unable to join us for our virtual commodity conference, this is your opportunity to listen to Session 7, in which Henry Olson from the Washington Post joined us to talk about the 2020 election. Mr. Olson was full of information as we look forward to the 2020 election. It's a great recap and a great kind of preview of what we'll see come November. If you would like to see the full video, it's available at mofb.org backslash events backslash commodity. Everyone, uh, and welcome to session uh, number seven of our virtual commodity conference. Uh, again, if you're on Zoom, you can ask questions by typing them in the question and answer column. Uh, if you're on the phone, uh, press star nine on your phone and we'll get you in the queue. That just is the same as holding up your hand, we'll get you in the queue. Uh, our, our seventh uh, session is entitled 2020 Election Handicap. Uh, we're fortunate to have Henry Olson with us. He's a Washington Post columnist, a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's the author and co-author of two books, The Working Class Republican, Ronald Reagan and the Return of Blue Collar Conservatism, and The Four Faces of the Republican Party. His bi-intellectual predictions have been widely praised for the uncanny accuracy and is a frequent guest on television and radio programs. Uh, someone I follow closely, I found him to be very good to follow uh, for both uh, analysis of election results uh, and predictions of what might happen before the election. Uh, we're very, very pleased and honored to have him today. And with that, Henry, take it away. Thank you very much, Blake. I uh, thank you for having me virtually, and I hope we can get back to a world where we can meet in person someday. I was looking forward to my first ever visit to Jefferson City, and now we'll just have to uh, delay that for the, some time in the future. But of course, the reason I can't be with you personally and you can't be with each other personally has to do with the pandemic. And the pandemic and also the murder of George Floyd has a lot to do with why President Trump is a heavy favorite to lose re-election right now. You probably follow the polls, not as religiously as people who are paid to do so, like myself, but you are, I'm sure, aware that President Trump is behind. It's worth bearing note how far he is behind and also how that relates to his job approval rating. So right now, as of this morning, he's behind Joe Biden by 6.4 point. <coughs> Excuse me. 6.4% in the real clear politics polling average. Well, that doesn't sound too bad. Candidates have come from behind at that level before. Incumbents running for re-election tend not to, but George H.W. Bush was behind by as many as 17 points after the Democratic convention in the summer of 1988, and he ended up winning by seven points. That was a 24-point swing in the polls. Surely it's possible for Donald Trump to not perhaps get a 24-point swing in the polls, but perhaps it's possible for him to narrow that considerably. But I want you to consider this. As far back as we have accurate polling, which is to say going back to the 1972 election with Richard Nixon running for re-election against George McGovern, the president who is seeking re-election, or in the case of Gerald Ford, seeking continued tenure in office, because of course he was appointed as vice president, not elected, the president seeking another term has 
always polled within a percent of his final job approval rating. So let's take a look at what that means for Trump today. I said that he was 6.4 points behind Biden, but more telling is that he is at 42.7% in his head-to-head -head against Biden. He's at 43.1% in his job approval. Again, what Trump is showing is that his support on the ballot is closely tied to the number of people who think that he is doing a good job. And when you look at that number is when you can begin to get worried about Donald Trump. He's behind Biden by 6.4%, but more people think that he's doing a bad job than are saying they're willing to vote for Biden. He's behind 11.9% on the job approval. That is to say 11.9% more Americans, 55%, say he, they disapprove of his job performance than say that they approve of his job performance. That means the people who aren't saying they're for Biden or for Trump right now are disproportionately, like 90% disproportionately, people who don't think Trump is doing a good job. Historically, that does not bode well for the incumbent. The vast majority of people who are undecided on election day end up voting against the incumbent because really what they're looking for is a simple reassurance that the person who is running against the incumbent won't screw things up. So for Trump, the head-to-head -head is much less important than the job approval rating. If Trump can't get that up significantly, he's going to lose. Now, it's an important caveat, though, is that Trump lost the popular vote to Hillary Clinton by 2%, but won a solid, not landslide, not what he says is the, one of the greatest victories ever, but a solid electoral college majority. Virtually all serious political analysts say that he can lose that by as many as three, maybe a little over 3% this time and still win the Electoral College. The reason why? His coalition tilts heavily towards white voters without a college degree. And those voters dominate the electorates in the Midwest, upper Midwest. They're important in Missouri, but they're dominant in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Iowa and Ohio, the five blue wall states that flip in 2016 to the shock of most democratic strategists. So what that means is that if Trump could get his job approval rating up to around 46 or 47%, he's got a fighting chance to win. Because at that point, he would only be behind by four or three points on the job approval rating, and he could have another narrow electoral college victory. What are the odds that he's going to do that? Well, it wasn't so long ago that he was in that range. Trump was at 46% and down by four points before COVID struck in early March. His ratings were trending upwards, which is to say that the, if they could continue through the summer, in other words, in a world without COVID and a world without the Floyd murder, you probably would have seen Trump at 47, 47.5% job approval rating, trailing Biden by only a couple of points. And that's a recipe for an electoral college majority. What really happened to Trump was the double whammy that we've both been living with and reading about all for the last six months. He started to decline with the pandemic. And particularly, he started to decline when he had his daily press conferences that often devolved into the press trying to bait him and Trump taking the bait 
and thereby giving them the quote that made it sound like he was out of control or wasn't didn't quite have a handle on the crisis. His ratings bounced up a little bit after he stopped those, when people stopped getting the daily quotes that uh, were uh, driving them mad. But they really started to tank again after the Floyd death and the protests. Because again, the president didn't handle that in a way that reassured the marginal Trump voter that they could be satisfied with him. His ratings are on the way up. They've improved by about two points, uh, maybe a point and a half since the end of uh, July, third week of July. That's not a bad rate of improvement, but he has to continue it. If he's not sitting at 45 to 46% by Labor Day, it's going to be really hard to see how he turns things around absent a sort of intervention of a Floyd or, uh, or of a COVID that rivets people's minds that this time he handles well. That can be an international crisis. That can be you know, amazing news of a vaccine that suddenly is not only in theory available, but in fact available. It can be something else. One of the things about what's called black swan events is that they're extremely hard to predict what they actually might be. I don't think anybody had global pandemic in the disaster pool in the, around the office on February 1st maybe February 1st because of China, but January 1st. But Trump has to be able to show uh, the marginal Trump voter that he can command respect, that he can handle the difficult situations that are before us. He obviously needs good news on the economy. And to that end, today's job report, which saw a further decline in the unemployment rate, is a small but important piece of good news. If we saw rates of improvement similar to what we have seen in the past month, in the next couple of months, well, by August, the unemployment rate would have dropped to somewhere around 8%. And it would still be high, but it would be moving in the right direction. And Trump could plausibly say the worst is over. But that's going to require a lot to go right. It's going to require Trump to be able to keep a level of discipline that he's found difficult. It's going to require a little bit of good luck coming back into our lives and his life, as opposed to the bad luck that has transpired thus far. And it may require Joe Biden to begin to actually campaign and slip up a little bit. One thing, though, that you should keep in mind is that the uh, race tends not to change a whole lot after Labor Day. Uh, that generally we've seen small movements in polls in the last few elections after Labor Day, but not large movements. Again, a super event can change that. But if we're not looking at Trump by Labor Day, having recovered to that 45, 46, 47% job approval rating that makes it a game, then I think that we're probably only talking about the margin of Biden's victory rather than the possibility of Trump's reelection. Now, a lot of Republicans say, well, okay, we would like the president to win re-election, but we understand it's difficult, uh, but of course we can still hold the Senate. Well, the problem with that is that for the last couple of elections, Senate races have been run on national trends, not local trends, which is to say that people seem to be voting as if they're voting for parliament in a British style system where the identity of the local candidate is not anywhere near as important as the party that that person belongs to. In 2016, for the first time in nearly a century, not a single Senate seat went differently than the party uh, who won it at the presidential level. 
And in 2018, Trump job approval ratings were almost a perfect predictor of which parties would win the Senate seats. The Republicans did not pick up a couple of seats where Trump had job approval ratings barely over 50, um, uh, or one that was barely over 50 in Montana. They did not hold Arizona where the Trump's job approval was barely over 50. And they lost the West Virginia seat where his job approval was quite high, but Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator, has spent a career as a uh, saying that he is a different type of Democrat and persuaded a very large share of Trump favorable voters to back him in his narrow three-point win. So if Trump is behind, the question is, how far is he being behind before Senate control is lost? And my rough estimate is that if Trump loses by four or more, the Democrats will gain control of the Senate. Now, it doesn't mean they'll have a big control. What I'm talking about is that if Trump loses by four, the odds are that they will lose a net three seats. They will gain Alabama, which the Democrats hold only by the fluke of Judge Roy Moore's nomination in 2017. And even he, as flawed a candidate as he was, nearly won. Coach Tommy Tuberville should not have a problem in winning re-election. But that would be offset with the loss of three seats where, uh, where Trump is polling poorly, and that is Arizona, Colorado, and Maine. And the fourth seat would be North Carolina. That's really the cusp seat. Trump won it by about 3% in 2016 when he lost by two points. If he loses by four points, uh, that projects out to a very close race in North Carolina. And then it's kind of a coin flip whether the Republican incumbent Tom Tillis wins or loses. If Trump loses by much more than four points, it's very hard to see how he doesn't lose North Carolina, and it's very hard to see how Tom Tillis outruns him by enough in order to win. The problem comes if you for Republicans, not at a 50-50 Senate where the vice president would break a tie and where Republicans would mount a full court press on Joe Manchin to switch parties and keep them in control, um, but if Trump loses by larger margins. If Trump loses by six or seven nationwide, what that projects to is that seats in Georgia and Montana become vulnerable. Trump won Georgia by about five points, but Brian Kemp, the governor, won by only a little over a point in governor's race for 2018. Suburbanites around Atlanta have been turning towards the Democrats since the Trump nomination. And if Trump loses by six or seven points, then incumbent Senator David Perdue's reelection is threatened. And then you have Montana, where John Tester won re-election last time by about a four-point margin, even though Trump had a 51% job approval rating. The Democrats have a strong candidate, Governor Steve Bullock, who has demonstrated cross-partisan appeal for his two terms of governor, and he is running very closely in the polls. Again, if Trump is losing by seven or losing by eight, the fact that Montana's voters tend to split their tickets outside of the presidential race means that Bullock could win as well. That would bring the Democratic total, if they won both of those seats, up to 52. And that gives them a narrow but workable majority that doesn't depend on Joe Manchin for its survival. But let's go back to what I said the job approval ratings are at. Let's say Trump doesn't approve. Well, he's upside down by 12 points, as I said. What happens if on election day, people decide that they're going, they've had enough, that Joe Biden wins by 11 or 12 points? 
that would be the largest repudiation of an incumbent in a popular vote total, not the electoral college, but in a popular vote total since Herbert Hoover in 1932. And it would lead to devastation for the Republicans in the Senate. At a minus 10, minus 11, minus 12 point scenario, Joni Ernst in Iowa probably loses. She's already uh, running neck and neck with her Democratic opponent, Teresa Greenfield, at a, in a position where Trump is down by six points in the ballot, but down by 12 points on the job approval. Alaska, which also votes for Democrats at the gubernatorial and the senatorial level at a much higher rate than they do for the presidential level, is another state that could fall. Dan Sullivan uh, won his seat six years ago in the Republican wave, unseating somebody, Mark Begich, who won for the Democrats in the 2008 Democratic wave. If you're talking about a 10, 11, 12 point loss, you're talking about Alaska being competitive. You're talking about the other Georgia Senate seat, the one that is a special election held by Kelly Leffler, an appointed incumbent, possibly going as well. So far, Democrats are trying to consolidate behind an African-American pastor, Raphael Warnock. They have not been able to consolidate their vote, but they have been consolidating their fundraising behind him. In a scenario where Trump has just given up for dead, it's entirely possible that the same voters who will vote for John Ossoff, the Democratic nominee against David Perdue, would vote for Warnock against Kelly Leffler and her Republican opponent, Doug Collins. And then you have the possibility that Texas could go blue, finally. Beto O'Rourke won or lost by only about two and a half points in a state that Trump won by uh, close to nine points in 2016, 2020. John Cornyn is ahead of his Democratic opponent, MJ Hagar, but he's not ahead by convincing margin. He's ahead by the sort of margin that you expect would narrow once Hagar predictably goes up with the sort of television advertising that makes a challenger well-known. If Trump is losing by 10 or 11 points nationwide, then Texas is a toss-up at the presidential level. And if it's a toss-up at the presidential level, it's a toss-up at the senatorial level as well. Now, I'm not predicting that that's going to happen. I'm saying it's a possibility that will happen that you have to consider. And the possibility that things will be worse for Republicans is probably greater than the possibility that Trump will be able to come back and win re-election. So the bottom line I want to leave you with for the top level national results is Trump's in trouble. The odds are very high that he won't win. But for the Republicans in the Senate and the Republicans down ballot, the key question is going to be, what's the margin of the loss? The closer he gets, the better off the party is. And if he can lose by a respectable margin, maybe six points, then the party will have a very large base from which to rebuild once Trump is no longer the standard bearer. But if, this, if he doesn't improve his job approval numbers, and we're looking at minus 10 or minus 11 on job approval, going into election day. You should expect a bloodbath and you should expect a bloodbath up and down the ticket. Now there's, I haven't spoken about the house. The house is almost certainly going to remain democratic control. The reason why is simple. The ballot test for the generic ballot where people are asked, are you gonna vote for the Democrat or the Republican candidate is bad. It is sitting at around minus eight, minus nine for the Republicans, which is a little worse than it was in 2018 when they lost in that 40 seats. You might note that that is roughly in between where Trump sits with Biden and where Trump's job approval rating sits. 
So again, the Republican chances to avoid losses and pick up seats in the House are directly tied to Trump's job approval. At minus five, minus six in uh, job approval, and minus five, minus six on the ballot, that suggests Republicans could gain a couple of seats. There are a lot of seats that Democrats hold that is basically Republican territory. The fact is, even in wipeout elections, the losing party usually gains a couple of seats to balance their losses. The Republicans actually lost 42 seats in 2018. They won two in Minnesota to make it a net 40. If Trump loses by four, five, six, you should expect single-digit Republican gains in the House. That will make Nancy Pelosi even more dependent on the remaining moderate Democrats in other suburban or rural districts that are less deep blue. And that will make the Democratic ability to pass a wide-ranging agenda more difficult. But what happens if we're in that minus 12 range again? If we're in that minus 12 range again, you're talking about further Republican losses. You're talking about a couple of gains to offset losses that could be as many as 20 seats. The sorts of seats that would fall are the sorts of seats that you would expect to fall. The seats where Trump barely won in 2016 against Hillary Clinton and would likely lose in 2020, or the sorts of seats where votes have tended to move even though they voted for Trump in 2016, their upper, edu upper income educated voters have been moving in an even more democratic direction in the ensuing time period. You have one of those seats in Missouri. That's Ann Wagner's seat. Ann Wagner's seat was a Trump seat with about 52% of the vote in 2016, but calculations show that Claire McCaskill carried that against Josh Hawley. It's exactly the sort of upper income educated seat that has been trending against the Republicans nationwide. And uh, one should expect under any circumstances that Representative Wagner will have a very difficult and arduous reelection. But even though she'll try and campaign as her own person, the 2018 House races showed it was extremely difficult. That virtually every, uh, there was a whole series of polls taken by the New York Times and Siena College. And I did a write up of that for the site American Greatness, which I was writing for before I joined the Post. And what I found was that the Republican ballot test near, was, again, nearly mirrored the uh, Trump job approval rating by district. So if Trump is sitting at 43% uh, nationwide, it means that he's probably only sitting at 47 or 48% in a place like Wagner's district. And there are only three Republicans that I could find who outran the president by three or more percentage points in 2018. Maybe Ann Wagner can be that person. I wouldn't put my money on it. The bottom line is the president, we all know, has, because of his character and his personality, always engendered sharp feelings for and against. We know that whites with a college degree have been the group that have found him most difficult to swallow. They moved against him compared to their support for Mitt Romney in 2012 sharply in 2016, they moved even more sharply in 2018, and they are moving even sharp, more sharply than 2018, according to early polls. If the president cannot reverse some of that, not all of that, not even most of that, but if he cannot reserve some of that damage, then he's a sure loser, and it's going to be a bad night for Republicans. If, however, he can regain some of their trust, bring back that marginal person 
who as, as recently as February was willing to give him another look. He might lose, but it's still going to be an okay night for Republicans down ballot. It might even be a better night than many think if people in that group decide that they don't want to give Joe Biden a blank check. In 2016 was one time when the House races did not go directly in a partisan way. A lot of the seats that shifted strongly for Hillary Clinton compared to how they voted in the Clinton in the Obama Romney race reelected their Republican incumbent in 2016. It was as if they were saying, "We don't want Donald Trump, but we still want a responsible Republican Party." That changed in 2018. If they think Joe Biden is going to win, maybe that will come back. We don't see it in the polls yet. But people tend to make decisions late on questions like that. A similar decision in, 20, in 1996, when Bill Clinton looked like an easy shoe-in, led to Newt Gingrich and the Republicans retaining control of the House, when in the summertime it looked like they might lose it. People decided they didn't want to give Bill Clinton a blank check, even if they wanted to reelect him. That sentiment, if it returns and is encouraged by national Republicans to return in the fall, could mean that the down ballot for Republicans looks better than the analysis I've been presenting to you today. But that's, again, just a theory. It's just a possibility. The data don't show it right now. So in conclusion, what I'd like to say is that you should be preparing for Democratic control of Washington. The Democratic control of Washington could be strong. In a landslide scenario, we're talking about Nancy Pelosi having 250 seats in the House, Chuck Schumer having 55 seats in the Senate, and that probably means a more aggressive push in the first 100 days as Democrats seek to take advantage of that. It could mean narrow control, could mean an Allison Span Abigail Spanberger House, you know, a moderate uh, Democrat in suburban Richmond, and a Joe Manchin Senate, where the left is going to be continually frustrated by having to deal with people who know that their political survival is only uh, rests on a thin reed. But those are the tea leaves as I see them right now. I'd be delighted to ask, answer any questions you have, uh, with the one exception is I really can't answer questions about the Missouri State House. I haven't looked down that closely. But thank you very much, Blake, for having me. Thank you for listening, and I'd love to take the questions. All right, I'm going to combine a couple of questions. We had one from uh, here and one from Barry Bean, who uh, is writing from down in southeast Missouri, what we call the Boot Hill. Uh, so my question would be, who do you, uh, three-part question, I'm really going to work it hard. Okay. Is Biden's best pick for VP? Who do you think he's going to choose? And does a vice presidential pick make any difference at all? Okay. His best pick, I still think, uh, is Amy Klobuchar, but he's not going to make that pick. He's, uh, because the point of Biden is not that people are voting for Biden, it's that they're voting against Trump. So the best pick for him is somebody who reassures that college-educated white voter whose vote is the difference between victory and defeat. But he's not going to pick her because of what's happened in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. Uh, it seems that he is settling on a woman of color with the possible exception of Elizabeth Warren. I think out of the people from a political standpoint who he can pick from, probably his best pick is Tammy Duckworth. Uh, and that's because she's a person of color. She's on the left. She's not crazy left. She's a veteran who lost both legs for her country um, and uh, is, has enough 
record of tenure in the House and in the Senate to pass the experience smell test, but not so much uh, that she uh, is either a tired old hand or has such a long record that you can drag up votes from 20 years ago. Um, I think Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris uh, would be an okay choice for him. I don't think she brings a whole lot to the ticket, but I don't think she drags him down a whole lot either. She's got some left-wing positions that she'll have to disown, but she also has some positions that progressive activists aren't crazy about from her tenure as attorney general and San Francisco district attorney. Um, I think Susan Rice is somebody who uh, looks good on paper, uh, but I would never want to put somebody who's never run for office in the national crucible. I think that's too much of a political risk. That doesn't matter if somebody looks good in occasional press briefings and one or two congressional grillings on Benghazi. 24-7, 365 is different. And if you haven't lived through it, you don't know what's coming. Uh, so I, uh, if he picked Susan Rice and I was a Republican, I'd actually kind of be happy. Um, I think the vice presidential pick will not matter unless that person screws up or unless there, you know, one, which is a Sarah Palin problem, you know, which is say that Palin looked good until she was under the 24 seven, 365 glare. And then she proved that uh, she couldn't uh, handle it. You know, I always thought Sarah Palin was kind of like baseball rookie who showed promise in double A was called up to the bigs a little bit too soon. In baseball, you send them down for seasoning and then you bring them back up. Uh, but she decided not to go that route. She joined an independent league, went rogue and made a lot of money, but never was a serious player after that. Um, the other thing would be is if he picks somebody like Elizabeth Warren, who has a very clear persona, very ideological persona, very divisive persona, and Biden sends the signal that this is the direction he wants to go in, because then he owns her agenda. And the fact that she is articulate in a way that, let's be generous, he's not, also suggests that there's going to be the question of who's the real president? Is the real president going to be the person who's clearly with it, who speaks and is organized? Or is the clear with it going to be kind of like the amiable guy who won't come out of his basement? That's not a position I want to be in if I'm Joe Biden. But it may be the position he ends up in. Um, but unless you get that sort of risk, you know, either a big fail or a big risk, vice presidential selection won't matter very much. It's mainly an internal coalition building game and people will go on to the main event just the way they always do. All right, we have a question from Vinny Club. He would uh, ask, what does a higher voter turnout percentage play or how does it play? Uh, is the silent majority going to have any impact? Well, it's not clear to me that there is a silent majority. Um, that is a Trump theory. But I will say one thing in its defense, and I'm looking very closely at uh, um, Washington right now. Washington held its primary on Tuesday. And unlike most states, it has what's called a top two primary. In a top two primary, everybody from all parties or no parties run on the same ballot and the top two, regardless of party, go on to the general election. States that have top two primaries, Washington and California are the big two, typically find that the partisan totals from the primary are very close to the partisan totals in the general, which is to say, if you want to know how a Republican is going to do in November, look at how the total of Republicans in that district did in September. Well, they've got about three quarters of the vote counted. 
in Washington. And Washington, let's say, is a blue state with a lot of educated voters. And so far, Republican vote totals in the three congressional seats that matter are actually up from 2018 slightly, which is to say you're reading all these stories of gloom and doom. And of course, 2018 was not a good year for Republicans, but the doom and gloom stories would suggest that the vote totals would be going down, not going slightly up. And they got about a quarter of the vote to count. And it may very well be that in, like in other states, Demo voters who are younger tend to decide and vote later and they tend to be democratic. So it may be that what I'm saying goes away. But if it doesn't, that's the first piece of evidence that there's a silent majority that's not being picked up in polls. Why do I say that? Well, Washington's a democratic state, but if vote totals aren't going down for Republicans in Washington, we can infer they're not gonna go down elsewhere too. And that means that polls that show Trump behind in Wisconsin, for example, by a few points, may not matter as much as the fact that Scott Walker lost Wisconsin by less than one percentage point in 2018. The fact that Trump is down in all these polls in Arizona may not matter as much as the fact that Martha McSally lost by only two points. So if Washington shows up with these totals that suggest that there is a polling question, and I won't get into why, uh, the details of how um, polling methodology could at once both be facially accurate but inaccurate, uh, in fact, uh, that is something I will look at very closely in forming my uh, final projection. Um, I tend to think that vote, high voter turnout is good for Trump. Why is it good for Trump? We know that the voter base in 2018 was ginned up uh, in a disproportionately anti-Trump way. The group that tend not, the group that did not vote as much in 2018 as they do in presidential races are whites without a college degree. So 2018 Democrat, Trump was upside down by nine points on job approval among the voter base, according to the exit poll. Higher turnout should bring out a disproportionate number of Trump supporters or theoretical Trump supporters, which may mean that on a presidential electorate, Trump would have only lost by seven rather than by nine, which means that Walker in a presidential year may have won by half a point. So I tend to think that a higher turnout compared to 2018 is good for Trump because the Democrats are gonna get a high turnout, but it may take the presidential year to get the marginal Trump voter to show up to vote. I'd be more worried if the voter turnout looks like 2018 because I know that tilts toward the Democrats. So we're gonna have, or I assume we will have, a bit of a different electorate come November simply because of what we would expect would be a huge increase in mail-in voting. Uh, without going into the mechanics of how, how we do that without fraud, but, but just as a change in the uh, electorate, what does it mean for the election? It depends who ends up voting, and, the thing, and that's going to depend on states. I've written that this, if, if mail-in voting encourages turnout, that's a good thing for Trump in the upper Midwest, because what it means is these marginal whites without a college degree who don't go and vote in person can vote more easily, and they're much more numerous than young people with college degrees or minorities. You know, Wisconsin is less than, you know, less than 7% African-American. I believe it's a little over 10% total minority, and the sort of, um, you know, liberal college person that uh, flocks to Austin and Boston does not flock to Milwaukee and Green Bay. So mail-in voting in 
uh, in Wisconsin, I think, will help Trump if Trump voters actually show up, you know, and cast the ballot. Other places like Texas, I think, would hurt Trump. You know, it's really a question of the composition of the electorate. I tend, mail balloting has the potential for fraud, but it's really been one that has been unrealized on a large scale yet. Um, so most people, I, th I think, don't want to participate in a voter fraud, and the sort of number of people who would have to do so to actually swing an election is huge, generally. You know, that a small fraud scheme can change the outcome of a really close election, but to really swing an election with fraud requires a degree of organization and a willingness of people to simply willingly do that, that we've not seen in this country yet. And so I tend not to want to run the scare flag up the pole on mail-in voting and fraud, particularly since I believe that in some states it helps Trump rather than hurts because it really matters what the composition of the electorate is. We finished our primary race on Tuesday. Uh, so now we know, although we did going into the race, who our candidates for governor are going to be. Uh, any comments on the Missouri gubernatorial race? You know, I haven't looked at it very closely, but uh, I have the fact that I'm not hearing it uh, trumpeted as a possible uh, pickup by Democrats suggests something to me. Uh, Missouri should still be a Republican state, even with Trump being in uh, bad sorts. You know, that Hawley won by six points against McCaskill last time. Um, and it's, again, it's a if you believe the exit poll, Trump was down by nine on job approval. Right now he's down by 12. You know, that does not translate into a Democratic victory in Missouri. It translates into a narrow Republican uh, reelection. Uh, things would have to get pretty bad, uh, worse than they look right now for Trump. Which what I'm saying is that even if the disaster scenario comes out, I think uh, Republican, uh, the Republican candidate for governor narrowly wins reelection in Missouri. We've also take a position, taken a position in the Wagner race. We'll be supporting uh, Congresswoman Wagner. To hear you talk, it all comes down to national. Uh, can an organization like Farm Bureau uh, make a difference in a close race like the, uh, like the uh, Wagner district? Well, yeah, the thing is, in a, clo in a close race, everything matters. You know, if you're talking about a race that could, you know, let's assume that um, I don't have internal polling from a from the Wagner race. I do have access to some internal polling in a similar seat elsewhere in the country. And what that tells me uh, is that Trump is sitting at, probably sitting at 47 or 48 job approval in the Wagner seat. Um, she could run one or two points ahead of that. I don't know if there's a third party candidate on the ballot. Um, you know, if there is, that will help her because all she has to do is get a plurality, not a majority. You know, if the Farm Bureau can swing 500 or 1,000 votes, that matters uh, in a close race like that. And particularly, you know, every point Trump gets his job approval rating up significantly improves her chance of, uh, of, of winning. You know, if his job approval is 45% nationally, then I think she has a real chance of narrowly winning re-election. If it's 45% uh, job approval rating, it'll be over 50% Missouri. It'll probably, overall, it'll be like 49% in her district. Anything you guys do, 100 votes, 200 votes, 300 votes matters in a race that could be as close as hers. You're not going to swing the outcome, 
She's not going to swing the outcome absent some killer oppo on her opponent. But um, anything matters. And that uh, what you should do is uh, take heart and redouble your efforts rather than uh, throw them away. Because in a race that's likely to be as close as hers, the smallest things could be the difference between victory and defeat. Okay, we've come up against time. I appreciate your comments. It was wonderful. Uh, we hope that uh, we can have you come to Missouri when both uh, the pandemic and our election prospects are better. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. All right. And with that, uh, we will turn to uh, Spencer and uh, we're going to do a little election update with our staff this morning for the rest of our time uh, in this hour. So I will uh, vacate my seat and let Spencer take over. All right. Thanks so much, Blake. If y'all bear with me for just a second, I'm going to get BJ and I's uh, PowerPoint loaded up. If Elizabeth would allow me to share my screen. Give me just a second. All right, so just wanted to give a really quick recap. Um, and Mr. Olson did a great job of covering a lot of the things that I uh, was hoping to cover in this uh, portion of the presentation. So I may skim over these a little bit quickly uh, because I know BJ has a lot of things to talk about. We have a lot of statewide races that we're paying close attention to this year. So we'll jump right in with a quick look at Missouri's congressional districts and how we see those races playing out post-primary as we move to the general election. I'll kick it off by uh, probably the upset of the night on primary election night this past Tuesday was that Democratic candidate Cori Bush did unseat Congressman Lacey Clay, uh, who has been, I believe he's currently serving his 10th term as Congressman in Missouri's first congressional district. If you're a student of history or if you just enjoy political trivia, um, you might be interested to know that a member of the Clay family had actually held that seat there in that um, city of St. Louis and parts of St. Louis County uh, since 1969. So the Clay family has a long history of, of holding that first congressional seat. Uh, Congresswoman, uh, excuse me, um, candidate Cori Bush did uh, win that primary pretty handily. Some of you might remember that she actually ran against Congressman Clay in 2018. And she was backed by several uh, progressive Democratic groups known as Justice Democrats and Brand New Congress. You may or may not be familiar with those groups, but they are the same organizations that backed Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez out of New York's 14th congressional district and got her elected two years ago. So a lot of progressive liberal groups behind uh, Ms. Bush. That seat has been held by a Democrat for multiple years. Uh, so we do uh, fully anticipate that Cori Bush will go on to be the Congresswoman for Missouri's first congressional district. Although you'll see that Republican candidate Anthony Rogers uh, has also filed in that race. 
District 2, we talked about this just a couple of minutes ago. Uh, this is a targeted race for Missouri Farm Bureau uh, with incumbent candidate Republican Ann Wagner uh, facing off against current state Senator Jill Shoup, uh, who's been in the Missouri Capitol for several years. The green check mark on your screen indicates that we have announced our endorsement of Congresswoman Wagner. We actually worked with the St. Louis area PAC Board of Trustees and Regional Endorsement Committee to make that endorsement in February of this year because we saw very early on that this is going to be a race that is targeted nationally because of many of the reasons that Mr. Olson referenced in his presentation. Senator Shoup, uh, I won't uh, I won't be able to directly comment on her relationship with Farm Bureau uh, as I don't work generally in the state capitol, uh, but I think BJ, it would be safe to say that she has not generally been a friend to many of our issues and we're looking forward to supporting Congresswoman Wagner, who has a very impressive voting record, uh, despite not having a ton of direct production agricultural in her district. Couple of polling numbers. This actually came out this morning. This is a snapshot from the Cook Political Report, which is a pretty well-known nationwide poll. Every election cycle, the Cook Political Report puts out a list of what they call targeted races, which means that um, the incumbent is not necessarily uh, guaranteed to win or the party is not necessarily going to stay the same. This year, they've targeted approximately 90 races in the House of Representatives that they've, they've rated on their scale. Just this morning, uh, that, that race for Ann Wagner had been polling as a uh, lean Republican prior to this morning, where you'll see at the bottom or where the box is, uh, that got moved to a toss-up as of this morning. So at this point, it is anybody's game. Uh, we will be working very hard over the next several months uh, with those who are in the second congressional district to really showcase Congresswoman Wagner's record on rural and agricultural issues. Fundraising numbers, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, when you're in politics and certainly when you're in congressional politics, money talks. Uh, these are the latest financial numbers filed uh, for the candidate committees uh, for both State Senator Shoup as well as Ann Wagner for Congress. You'll see that at this time, uh, Congresswoman Wagner does have a significant cash on hand advantage at about $3.2 million to Senator Shoup's $129,000, just, just over $129,000 cash on hand. These numbers are going to change a lot over the next several weeks and months. Because this is a targeted race federally and there's, being a, there's a lot of attention being paid to it, we fully anticipate that national groups are going to start weighing in financially. Um, so you're likely to see a lot of ads on TV, a lot of ads on the radio, and these numbers, um, these are not gonna be the final numbers spent dollar-wise in this race. Pulled the numbers, um, kind of doing a deep dive on District 2, uh, pulled the primary numbers from both parties uh, as of Tuesday evening close of polls. This is from the Missouri Secretary of State's website. One thing that is a bit concerning, and I actually, uh, Mr. Olson referenced this as well, but you'll see that the Democratic total number of votes was about 102,592 voters, uh, compared to a Republican turnout of only 63,404 votes. Uh, so that is a bit concerning. Moving into the uh, general election here in the next couple of months, that total, of course, is probably very likely influenced by the inclusion of Medicaid expansion on the ballot this, um, this primary cycle. Um, you know, a lot of support for Medicaid expansion in the St. Louis metro area, which would be where this district 
um, would, would encompass. So uh, that's just something to pay attention to. There is a third party candidate filed. You'll see that there were only 735 ballots cast in, in the third party. Moving on to District 3, um, so Congressman Blaine Lutkemeyer is running against Democratic candidate Megan Riesebeck. Uh, you know, certainly have worked with Congressman Lutkemeyer for a long time um, and, and don't anticipate a, a difficult race there, although anything can happen when it comes to politics. Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler, this is another endorsement that we have announced just this week as our regional endorsement committees uh, meet with candidates and, and vote uh, on those endorsements. So we have Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler, who's of course the only Missourian who serves on the House Agriculture Committee, uh, facing off against Democratic candidate Lindsey Simmons, who's an attorney out of Boone County. Um, so that'll be an interesting race. I've seen a lot of things on social media in particular related to the race in district number four. District five, Congressman Emanuel Cleaver will be facing Republican candidate Ryan Dirks. Um, this, this is a little bit surprising to me just because the same Republican candidate has run against Congressman Cleaver for about as long as I can remember. And, and this year it's someone new, that person decided not to run. So there's a new face uh, in this race uh, to be facing off against Congressman Cleaver. Congressman Sam Graves up in Northern Missouri will be facing Democratic candidate Gina Ross in his race. And then um, Congressman Billy Long in Southwest Missouri, the Southwest Regional Endorsement Committee did vote to endorse Congressman Long's re-election last week. Uh, so that announcement has come out and that's why you see that check mark there. He will be facing off against Democrat Teresa Monsini, who's also from uh, the Springfield area. So uh, be an interesting race in Southwest Missouri. And then finally, Congressman Jason Smith from the Southeast part of the state, the 8th Congressional District, will be facing Democrat Kathy Ellis in his re-election bid this year. Wanted to run, uh, you know, kind of as we move from our congressional seats and, and Mr. Olson talked talk very in depth about how national politics plays into down ballot races. So just wanted to throw up a couple of graphics here uh, for you all to see. So on the screen, you'll see uh, Trump's approval rating as of July 27th, 2020. That's the that's the latest graph I could find that was available. I'm sure there have been um, been new data put out, but this I thought this was an interesting visual look at that. Uh, so at the gold or orange line you see at the top is the 55.8%. That's the disapproval rating, and then the green line, the 40.1% is approval rating. Now keep in mind, this is national level. This is not just Missouri. This is nation, a nationwide look at Trump's approval rating. That graph looks a little bit different um, as, you, as you move through. Right here we have uh, Trump versus Biden head to head on national polls as of earlier this week. Uh, this does show Biden with a slight advantage nationwide, about eight to nine points. But that graph, uh, that, that representation is a little bit different in the state of Missouri. So this is head to head just with Missouri voters. You see Trump at 49.2% and Biden at 43.7. So uh, a little bit of a lead there, a little bit different than the national political, um, the national political spectrum we're seeing. Of course, President Trump did carry Missouri in the 2016 election by 19 points. Uh, there are many that are speculating he will still carry Missouri this cycle, but it may not be by quite as significant of a margin. And all of those things have impact on those down ballot races. And I'm sure BJ will talk about so, some of the statewide races that we're watching. 
other races to watch, uh, we are, I'm actually very thankful that Missouri does not have a U.S. Senate race this year. We've paid our dues the past couple of times, so it's time for us to have a break and for somebody else to, to get to have some Senate races. As a reminder, senators are elected every six years. Uh, and the balance of the power in the U.S. Senate is really something that'll be something to watch as we look at the election paying out, playing out over the next couple of months. A couple of races we're watching and paying attention to are here in the Midwest. Uh, in Kansas, Senator Pat Roberts is the sitting senator, senior senator from Kansas. Uh, he's been there a very long time. He's current chair of the Senate Agriculture Committee. Very well respected uh, among all agricultural and non-agricultural circles. On Tuesday, uh, the Kansas uh, voters did nominate Republican Roger Marshall, who's a current U.S. congressman, as well as Democrat Barbara Bollier for the spot. Uh, this is considered to be a pretty hotly contested race in the Midwest. Um, in the primary, Marshall received 158,000 votes and Bollier received 152,000 votes. So right now that race is rated as lean Republican. You can see the cash on hand uh, fundraising numbers there at the bottom. Uh, in this race, the Democrat, um, is Dr. Bollier, excuse me, does have a significant cash on hand advantage, but again, anticipate that there will be uh, a lot more money poured into this race before this is over. You may have been familiar with the Kansas Senate race because they had a very tough primary, which is why you see Marshall seeing the disadvantage with cash on hand because a lot of money had to be spent uh, in the primary in order for him to secure the nomination. In Iowa, that's another pretty significant race we're paying attention to. Uh, Senator Joni Ernst, uh, who's a current U.S. Senator, has a tough Democratic opponent uh, who has a lot of uh, fundraising dollars behind her. Right now, Senator Ernst does have the cash on hand advantage at about 9.1 million. Uh, her challenger, Teresa Greenfield, is very well known in Iowa. She uh, has certainly made a name for herself and has a lot of support um, and she has a $5.6 million uh, cash on hand in her coffers at this point. Another interesting race in Iowa, uh, you know, I, I pay a lot of attention to Midwest races just because I, I communicate with my Midwest Farm Bureau counterparts very frequently. Um, they are going to be changing over one of their congressmen for sure. Um, incumbent Steve King, who is a very controversial figure in uh, politics over the past year did lose his primary to current state Senator Randy Feenstra. Um, that, that race is not guaranteed to continue to be a Republican seat, but that is one that has gained a lot of national attention that we're watching. Really quickly, and then I'll turn it over to BJ, I just want to talk about some of the issues that we find that are driving the 2020 election, particularly on the national and federal races. Uh, obviously, COVID-19 is about all that's getting talked about in Washington right now. Uh, it's hard to talk about anything without talking in some degree about the pandemic. And we see and, and predict that that will continue to be a driving issue as we move forward to November. Jobs in the economy always polls really high. Um, so that's that's no surprise there. Healthcare, social issues. And I had um, our intern Maddie Bader was putting together these slides and I had her include this quote that I thought was, was really interesting. It says two major crises are playing out at the same time in the United States. The coronavirus pandemic and social unrest that has erupted into nationwide demonstrations. In addition to the anxiety over the economy, have, they've helped erode a voter's confidence in the direction of the country to its lowest point of the Donald Trump presidency. 
Um, I thought that was a really interesting quote. Obviously, I will, I will remind everybody on this webinar that there are a lot of days between now and election day and things can change at the drop of a hat. Um, I also feel like we could do a whole uh, separate presentation. I'm sure BJ does not want to on whether or not polls are accurate, uh, but it is interesting to see some of the uh, some of the trends that we're looking at at the federal level. Uh, with that, I know that I moved through that pretty quickly, but I want to give BJ time before we um, move to the governor and lieutenant governor. So if you'll hold your questions to the end, remember you can put those in the Q&A box or raise your hand and we can unmute you. But BJ, I'll turn it over to you. Well, Spencer, um, I believe we're up against the clock here. Uh, with just a few minutes, I'm going to go extremely quick. Um, needless to say, Missouri Farm Bureau was thrilled with the outcome of the statewide elections for our endorsed candidates for both governor and lieutenant governor, with Governor Parson um, winning his primary and Lieutenant Governor Kehoe, who have been endorsed by Missouri um, Farm Bureau members. So we're excited to see those statewide races uh, come together. You'll see uh, Governor Parson going up against State Auditor uh, Nicole Galloway. Um, and Lieutenant Governor Kehoe will be taking on um, candidate out of Kansas City, a former center, uh, former city council member from there. Um, expect the governor's race to largely follow national politics as well. A lot of those polling numbers are going to play into that, although Governor Parson has been doing his own thing as far as COVID response and others. Um, so we're expecting a very tight race there or, or expecting it to be close, but um, can't wait to support both of those candidates as we look forward to November. Uh, with those Farm Bureau elected candidates of Parson and Kehoe in those two races. Um, I only have a couple of minutes here, but we're going to click through. These are the state Senate seats that are up for re-election. Spencer, go ahead to the next one. Uh, looking at the state Senate, uh, Senate District 1, this is a race that used to be uh, competitive. In uh, eight years ago, it was held by a Republican. The last eight years has been held by a Democrat, so we'll see how that shakes out. Uh, state Rep Doug Beck running against a Republican and David Linehan. Go ahead. Uh, Senate District 5, uh, sorry, we missed one there. Uh, Senate District 5, um, where we saw uh, Steve Roberts, a sitting state representative, won a competitive five-way primary there in the city of St. Louis for that Democrats, uh, largely considered a Democrat seat. So we'll expect that to stay. Uh, uh, Angela Walton Mosley, uh, another hotly contested Democrat uh, primary in the in the in the primary there, um, and then gonna be taking on a libertarian in the general election. Switching over to the Kansas City side, um, Greg Razor has been a sitting state rep for some time, for several years, was considered the favorite in the primary and did hold that. And then um, Barbara Washington taking on David Martin. Barbara Washington's been in the house for a couple of years. Farm Bureau members may remember she joined us at our annual meeting. Um, and touts her Republican roots. This is a seat that's been held by Democrats for some time. Would expect probably Washington to win um, and, and, uh, and prevail in that race. Uh, uh, Senate Minority Floor Leader John Rizzo uh, was not opposed in either the primary or in the general election, so he will be returning to the Senate. Elaine Gannon won a, a hotly contested three-way primary for Senate District 3. Um, and, and she will be the next senator from the third, representing about five counties of the northern part of southeast Missouri. Um, this will probably be Senate District 15, the hot, hottest contested race going for the Missouri Senate. That is sitting Senator Andrew Koenig versus sitting Representative Deb Lavender. 
Um, these two probably don't agree on a lot in politics, but it's going to be a hotly contested uh, race for that 15th district. Um, expect a lot of attention to be paid to this race. Uh, Senate District 17, this is a seat that has switched hands. Um, the, the photo on the top for Mr. Mickey uh, Young Hands is not a joke that it was kind of difficult to find a picture for him. Uh, I would encourage anyone who's interested to, to look into his candidacy a little bit. There's some funny videos associated with it. But Lauren Arthur, the Democrat, we do expect her to return to that seat. And Caleb Brown moving to Central Missouri. This is our Senate uh, Majority Floor Leader uh, taking on Judy Becker, well-known name in Central Missouri. Um, expect this to be a hot seat, uh, but you would expect the Majority Floor Leader to return probably. Denny Hoskins running for re-election. Uh, no primary opponent, got a liberal cherry, and we would expect Senator Hoskins to return. Senator Eigel, the leader of the Conservative Caucus in the Senate, did have some primary opponents. Um, that did challenge him for his seat there, uh, but we do expect uh, Senator Eigel to prevail. He did in the primary, um, but then it would expect the same in the general election as well. Jason Bean from Southeast Missouri, one of the candidates that Missouri Farm Bureau members um, supported in the primary. We don't get involved in a lot of primary races. Um, he won a hotly contested um, Southeast Missouri primary and will be the next senator from the 25th district. Holly Rader won a closely contested race in that Cape Girardeau, um, Southeast Missouri district. Uh, she won a contested primary by 141 votes. There may be a recount there, uh, but she will be taking on Donnie Owens from Bullinger County in that seat. Um, but it will be a contested race, but we would expect the Republican to prevail in that seat just because of the status of the district. Mike Moon uh, won a two-way primary against uh, uh, Mr. David Cole in Southwest Missouri to replace Senator Sater. Uh, Mr. Moon does not have a uh, general election candidate, so we would expect Mike Moon, who's been a representative for some time, to, he is your next senator of Southwest Missouri. Um, Rick Bratton uh, won a contested primary for the 31st District, going to be uh, taking on David Kinney, or Raymond Kinney, sorry, for the 31st District of, in, South, in Western Missouri. And lastly, Carla Esslinger is taking on Tammy Hardy. Hardy. Uh, Carla won a for a three-way primary in Southern Missouri. It was hotly contested, came out of that uh, by 142 votes, another extremely close one um, where she prevailed and um, gonna be taking on in largely a Republican district there. Um, so look for that race into November, although we expect uh, Carl Esslinger to prevail. That being said, I'm looking forward to prediction, uh, predictions. Um, if you take all those races together, uh, the balance of the Missouri Senate will probably be somewhere in the neighborhood of 23 to 24 Republicans and 10 to 11 Democrats just because of the nature of the races. Um, and here is the list of Missouri Farm Bureau Friend of Agriculture recipients. Uh, we will be rolling out those announcements on Monday where we will get all the information to our county farm bureaus of how to recognize these members of the legislature who've worked closely with both their local county farm bureaus and Missouri Farm Bureau as a whole in the state capitol. Sorry, I didn't have a lot of time to spend on that. Would love to break down races further, but didn't have the time to do so. Thank you. All right, that ends this session. Thank you to Spencer. Uh, thank you to BJ and thank you to our speaker, Henry Olson. If you're on Zoom, you'll need to end this session and begin another. We will see you in just about a minute. Hello.